This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these women's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, violence, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Linda Kasabian walked down the hall to a door she had seen only once before. In her hand... The wooden handle of a knife grew hot and slippery as her palms began to sweat. Last week, she had met a new friend, an actor who had moved to Hollywood to make it big. She had liked the man. She'd happily gone back to his apartment, thrilled at how well the two of them got along. She had wanted to return. And now here she was, although the circumstances had changed. Charlie wanted her to get her hands dirty, All of his followers had to be a part of Helter Skelter together. She gripped the knife tighter and rapped on the door. She heard footsteps approaching on the other side. She looked down the hallway to her family members, Susan Atkins and Clem Grogan. They stared back, eager. Charlie had ordered a bloodbath. And Charlie Manson always got what he wanted. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This week, near the 50-year anniversary of the infamous Manson family murders on August 9th and 10th, 1969, we finish our coverage of the women who fell into the Manson family and carried out murders in their leader's name. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. 
From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we met the women who became infamous for their part in the Manson family murders, some of the most gruesome, cold-blooded acts of violence in American history. Those women were 21-year-old Susan Atkins, 19-year-old Leslie Van Houten, 21-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel, 20-year-old Linda Kasabian, 26-year-old Catherine Gypsy Cher, and 20-year-old Lynette Squeaky Fromey. We detailed their sordid childhoods, which left these women feeling neglected, unloved, and susceptible to the charms of sociopath Charles Manson. By July of 1969, All five of these women were deep within Manson's fold and considered some of his most ardent followers. Leslie Van Houten has since described the impassioned sermons Charles Manson gave his family to prepare them for an oncoming race war called Helter Skelter. He represented himself as more divine than human, calling himself the Son of Man. He believed he was both Jesus and the devil in one person, and his followers accepted it wholeheartedly. The Manson family spent the summer of 1969 preparing for the race war that Charlie believed would burn Los Angeles to the ground. But when it failed to arrive, he decided it was time to spark the war himself. This week, we'll follow the chilling murders that made the Manson family notorious. Once Manson realized his followers would kill for him, he made a plan to put Helter Skelter into motion. By the time Gary Hinman was murdered in late July of 1969, Charles Manson, or Charlie as he was known around Spawn Ranch, had already plunged the family's free love rhetoric into much darker waters. And largely because his followers were on a steady diet of pot, LSD, mescaline, and a myriad of other drugs that have since fallen out of fashion, they were overly susceptible to his ranting. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Just a reminder, Vanessa is neither a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. As reported by Shanna Freeman and Nathan Chandler with How Stuff Works, Trace amounts of LSD stay in a person's system for weeks after a trip, and while a person will begin to hallucinate on just 0.25 micrograms of LSD, the average user in the 1960s took four times that amount. And considering the fact that the Manson family was partying on a nightly basis, the LSD had no chance of ever fully leaving their system. LSD trips can last 12 hours, which means they spent almost every waking moment high. 
Katrin Preller, a researcher on a recent study conducted at the University Hospital for Psychiatry in Zurich, explained that typically our brains constantly filter out information that it does not think we need. She says, the world around us is not the world we perceive because the thalamus filters out what it considers to be irrelevant information. We don't necessarily perceive all there is because that would be an overload of information. But Preller's team hypothesized that LSD caused the thalamus to stop filtering out that extra information. LSD causes parts of the brain that typically have nothing to do with vision to begin contributing to what a user sees. This is what causes the hallucinations LSD users report. All of this extra information provides for a very trippy experience, one that filters away any sense of reality, especially when used on a daily basis. In short, the Manson family literally lost touch with reality through their constant drug use, making them overly susceptible to Charlie's prophetic rantings. Throughout the summer of 1969, he was able to scare his followers into believing that Helter Skelter was on their doorstep. Charlie even recruited a local biker gang, the Straight Satans, to act as his army when Helter Skelter broke out. He recruited them the same way he got everything he wanted, by pimping out his female followers and providing the gang with mountains of drugs and free booze. It's hard to say whether the straight Satans actually believed they might be called upon to fight for Manson, or if they just knew a free party when they saw one. In addition to recruiting the straight Satans, Manson stockpiled rifles and guns and taught his followers how to use them. In one particularly chilling interview, Squeaky Fromey, flanked by two other followers, showed a journalist how to load a rifle. She told them she was able to shoot anyone at any time because she had no fear. Charlie, she said, had taken all the fear so that she didn't need to carry it. She wasn't alone in that feeling. On July 27, 1969, Charlie ordered Bobby Beausoleil to murder his friend and musician, Gary Henman, at Henman's cabin in Topanga Canyon. At Charlie's behest, Bobby wrote Political Piggy on the wall of Henman's cabin in blood. He also used blood to draw a paw print in the hopes of associating the murder with the Black Panthers. Charlie hoped that when news broke that the Black Panthers had murdered a white man in cold blood, racial tension would skyrocket. This would finally start the race war that would burn L.A. to the ground. But much to his dismay, the police were slow to assume the Black Panthers were involved. Instead, they took note of Henman's missing car and collected the bloody fingerprints left all over the crime scene. Yet as much as police didn't immediately suspect the Black Panthers, nobody seemed to have any leads on who committed the murders either. Except one person, Kitty Lutzinger, a Manson family member and Bobby Beausoleil's girlfriend, her testimony cracked the case wide open. Kitty had no idea that Bobby was involved with a murder, but by July 30th, she hadn't seen him in days and she was getting worried. The rhetoric on Spawn Ranch was growing darker, apocalyptic even, and she no longer believed that any of them were safe. That day, Kitty reported her suspicion that Charles Manson was dangerous to the police, then went into hiding on her parents' ranch. But unfortunately, 
the police never took her concerns about Manson seriously. A few days later, on August 6th, Bobby was spotted driving Gary Hinman's missing car. He was arrested and taken into the station for questioning. After he was booked and fingerprinted, police found the knife used to kill Hinman in the back seat of his car. A short interrogation proved Bobby a terrible liar. He was charged with murder. When word of Bobby's arrest hit Spawn Ranch, Charles Manson went into panic mode. He had always liked Bobby. He wasn't particularly bright and generally went along with whatever Charlie said, perfect qualities in a follower. But now, Charlie was worried that Bobby would crack under pressure or be tricked into confessing. He might even name Charlie as a co-conspirator in Gary Hinman's murder. Over the next two days, Charlie grew increasingly agitated and walked around Spawn Ranch with a temper. Finally, Catherine Gypsy Cher, the maternal figure of the family, asked him if everything was okay, and he snapped. He dragged her outside and punched her, knocking her to the ground, then kicked her repeatedly. The other followers watched in horror, but knew not to intervene. Better to let Charlie take out his aggression on someone else. Charlie finally relented when Gypsy spit out blood and left her in a heap in the dirt. He threatened to kill any member that tried to leave, then retreated into his cabin. Charles Manson had grown wild and unpredictable. The fun-loving, charismatic spirit that had drawn his 32 followers to the ranch was gone. That, they realized, was the part of Charlie inhabited by Jesus. Now, they were seeing the devil. Charlie was unraveling. He knew he needed to create a distraction to throw the heat off Bobby and the rest of the Manson crew. Helter Skelter needed to start. He knew the world around him was ready to snap. It just needed a little push. In a moment, the Manson family takes an infamous trip into Los Angeles. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The morning of August 8th, 1969, was dry and unusually cool, considering it was the height of summer. On Spawn Ranch, the tension was building as 21-year-old Bobby Beausoleil sat in prison for the murder of Gary Henman. Charles Manson, now 34, worried that Bobby would send the police after the family. As the day went on, nobody saw Charlie. The rest of the family tried to avoid him, knowing he was on edge. Then, as the sun began to set, 24-year-old Tex Watson approached a few of the girls and told them to get into the car. They were headed into town on a mission for Charlie. Linda Kasabian, 20, Patricia Krenwinkel, 20, and Susan Atkins, 21, followed him without question. The girls assumed they were going on a creepy crawly, 
when members of the family broke into homes late at night and committed petty theft. Before they left the ranch, Tex handed the girls speed capsules. They took the pills, then set off. Linda, for her part, was thrilled. She didn't like stealing, but she was excited that Charlie had chosen her by name for a mission. It was a sign of approval from a man she desperately wanted to please. That need for approval was what kept Manson's followers on the ranch, even more so than Charlie's death threats. The 1963 Milgram shock experiment studied our susceptibility to authority figures. The study was originally conducted to determine how likely it was that Nazi war criminals were truly just following orders. In the experiment, participants were instructed to deliver small electrical shocks to another subject at the instruction of a man in a white doctor's coat holding a clipboard. In truth, the shocks were a ruse. No one in the study was harmed, but with each shock, the subject reacted as if they were truly being electrocuted. At first, the shocks were light, but they became increasingly more painful, causing the subject to scream in agony. When the participant delivering the shocks questioned whether or not to keep going, the man in the white coat said, please continue. Eventually, the participants believed they were delivering lethal shocks, but the man in the white coat assured them, the experiment requires that you continue. So they kept going. Every single participant allowed themselves to be pushed far beyond a reasonable breaking point before saying no. 65% of participants never stopped delivering shocks until they were told the subject was dead. Milgram wrote in his paper titled The Perils of Obedience, Stark authority was pitted against the participants' strongest moral imperatives against hurting others, and with the participants' ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact most urgently demanding explanation. To the Manson women, Charlie was the ultimate authority, and they would follow any of his commands most ardently. After all, they had sacrificed a great deal to be part of this family. As the car wound through the canyon leading to Los Angeles in the early morning hours of August 9, 1969, Linda felt a growing prick of excitement. It had been weeks since she'd been selected for a creepy crawly, she wanted to bring back something special for Charlie to prove herself. Tex wove through Los Angeles and up into Beverly Hills. They drove past lavish homes, finally pulling up in front of 10050 Cielo Drive. The home was set back from the road, but they could see the warm lamplight from the living room coming through the trees. Tex hopped out of the car and cut the telephone line to the house with wire cutters. Then he motioned for Linda, Patricia, and Susan to follow him. They got out of the car, unsure of what they were doing at the house. Linda didn't question why Tex had a rope and a gun with him. They walked to the back of the property, scaled a fence, and crept through the trees and bushes that filled the yard. But they stopped short at bright headlights coming up the long driveway. 
Tex motioned for the girls to get down as he stepped onto the driveway and waved down the car. When it stopped, he fired four bullets through the passenger side window, killing the driver, Stephen Parent. Linda was stunned. Tex forced her to steal the driver's wallet. Her hands shook as she reached into the dead man's pocket. Then, Tex told her to go to the back of the house and act as a lookout, while he, Susan, and Patricia made their way to the front of the house. When the trio reappeared in the backyard, they each brandished knives. Linda watched in horror as Tex cut a long, slow slit into the screen door. Still in shock, she stayed in the backyard as the others disappeared inside. In the living room, 26-year-old Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant, was hosting a small get-together with friends. Tate was a stunningly beautiful up-and-coming starlet who was looking forward to becoming a first-time parent with her husband, Roman Polanski. Around the coffee table were her friends, Jay Sebring, a famous hairdresser and Tate's former boyfriend, Wojtek Frykowski, a friend of Polanski's who was staying with the couple while in town, and Abigail Folger, heir to the Folger coffee fortune. The foursome went silent as they stared at the three young adults who had just crashed into their living room. The intruders just stood there for a moment, before Tex took the rope off his shoulder and ordered the foursome to huddle together in the living room. He then took the rope and looped it around all four of their necks, throwing the end over a beam running across the ceiling. He pulled on the rope until it was taut, binding the captives together. Tate, Folger, Sebring, and Frykowski stayed silent and cooperated, hoping that the three lunatics would rob them and go away. But that hope quickly faded when Tex bellowed, You're all going to die. Sharon Tate let out a blood-curdling scream that Linda could hear in the backyard. In the chaos, Tex let the rope slacken, and the four captives freed themselves and tried to scatter, though they didn't get far. Tex shot Jay Sebring, who fell to the ground. He then shot Frykowski twice and hit him over the head with the butt of his gun 13 times. Then he turned back to the wounded Sebring and stabbed him to death. Susan Atkins, meanwhile, closed in on Sharon Tate. She pleaded for her life, but Susan showed her no mercy. She stabbed Sharon 16 times and briefly considered cutting the baby out of her stomach. Patricia chased Abigail Folger around the living room, delivering a few blows with a knife before Abigail escaped down the hallway. Frykowski, miraculously still alive, crawled towards the sliding glass door and got to his feet. Shaking, he stumbled out into the backyard, where he ran into Linda, who was beside herself with terror. In a later interview, Linda recalled looking into his eyes and watching the life leave them. She knew he was dying and didn't know how to stop it. Linda and Frykowski stood there, both gasping for air, unable to form words, until he finally limped past her and collapsed in the yard. Seconds later, Tex came running out of the sliding glass door, jumped on Frykowski, and stabbed him again and again, 
51 times in total. Meanwhile, inside the house, Abigail Folger made a break for it and ran into the side yard with Patricia hot on her trail. Folger, dizzy from blood loss, tripped on her dress and fell to her knees. Folger screamed for her mother as Patricia climbed on top of her and stabbed her 28 times. Linda could hear Abigail shrieking in pain, Patricia screaming in fury, and the knife cutting into flesh over and over again. It made her nauseous. For a moment, she thought about making a break for it, running to a nearby house for help. But she knew that wasn't an option. The other three would find her and kill her, along with anyone else she had spoken to. So, for lack of a better option, Linda went to the car and waited. Inside the house, what began as a horror show only became more gruesome. Susan Atkins dipped a towel in Sharon's blood and wrote pig on the front door and death to pigs on the living room wall. As Tate lay dying, the Manson family members wrapped a rope around her neck and strung her up by the ceiling beam. She died of blood loss and strangulation, Her baby died 15 minutes later. Finally, Patricia, Susan, and Tex came tearing down the embankment. They piled into the car, sweaty from exertion, thrilled at the atrocities they'd just committed. As they tore off their bloody clothes, Tex told Linda to drive. He was furious she hadn't participated in the murders. Patricia complained that she hurt her wrist, She worried she had strained it while stabbing through Abigail Folger's bones. When they finally pulled back up to Spawn Ranch, Charlie came out to greet them. He asked if any of them had any remorse, and without hesitation, each of them, including Linda, responded no. The next morning, the Tate family's housekeeper walked in on the bloodbath at 10050 Cielo Drive. She found Stephen Parent shot dead in his car, Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski in the yard, Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate stabbed to death inside. It wasn't until the news broke on television that Linda learned Sharon Tate had been pregnant. The murders reverberated throughout Los Angeles. The only obvious motive seemed to be that the Polanskis and their friends were randomly targeted for being affluent Hollywood types. The Los Angeles elite went into panic mode. Local shelters were overwhelmed by homeowners looking to adopt ferocious guard dogs. Calls flooded the police stations, demanding to know their plans to prevent another attack. While the rest of Los Angeles grieved, Charles Manson stewed. He was proud that his followers had killed Sharon Tate and her friends, but found himself upset with how messy the job had been. That afternoon, he approached Linda Kasabian and told her she would be driving them into town again that night. He was going with them this time. He was going to show them how to make a clean kill. A few hours later, on the night of August 10, 1969, Linda Kasabian drove Charles Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Clem Grogan, and Leslie Van Houten down the long dirt road to Los Angeles. They drove through the east side to the upscale Los Feliz neighborhood 
and pulled up in front of 3301 Waverly Drive. Linda braced herself. Yesterday's nightmare was about to repeat. In a moment, the Manson family makes another attempt to ignite Helter Skelter. Now back to the story. 34-year-old Charles Manson had a simple plan to ignite Helter Skelter and throw the heat off Bobby Beausoleil, who sat in jail awaiting a murder trial. He instructed his family to murder L.A.'s well-to-do and blame the crimes on the Black Panthers until eventually there would be riots on the streets. The country was a powder keg. It just needed a spark. Which is why, on the night of August 10, 1969, he piled into the car with 20-year-old Linda Kasabian, 19-year-old Leslie Van Houten, 21-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel, 21-year-old Susan Atkins, 19-year-old Clem Grogan, and 24-year-old Tex Watson, ready to kill in cold blood. They pulled up to the home of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, a successful grocery store chain owner and boutique owner, respectively. Everyone waited in the car while Charles hopped the fence and snuck into the house. He held the LaBiancas at knife point and tied their hands behind their backs. Then he came back out to the car and directed Leslie, Patricia, and Tex to take care of them. As they went inside, Charlie hopped into the driver's seat and drove off with the other three accomplices. Inside the house, another slaughter ensued. Leslie Van Houten stabbed Rosemary LaBianca 41 times. Patricia and Tex took care of Lino, leaving him with 26 stab wounds. Police also found a knife and fork sticking out of his backside and the word war carved into his stomach. After stabbing the LaBiancas to death, they threw pillowcases over the victims' heads and wrapped a lamp cord around both their necks, just as they had done with the rope at the Tate residence the night before. Again, they wrote in blood all over the walls, death to pigs, helter-skelter, and the word rise. Then, instead of fleeing the scene, they took their time showering and fixing a meal in the kitchen before hitchhiking back to Spawn Ranch. Meanwhile, Manson drove west with Susan, Clem, and Linda, He was upset that Linda hadn't killed anyone the night before. Tonight, she would prove her allegiance to Helter Skelter. Charlie drove to the apartment building of the actor Linda had met on Venice Beach. He gave her a knife and told her to slit the man's throat. Linda got out of the car, and Susan and Clem followed her into the apartment building. Manson drove off back to Spawn Ranch. Linda could hear her heart beating in her ears as she climbed the staircase to her new friend's apartment. She didn't know what to do. She didn't want to kill anyone, but she felt like she had no choice. Susan and Clem were close behind her. She could feel their bloodlust. The two of them were ready for murder. Linda wondered if they were jealous that they wouldn't be the ones to deliver the fatal blow. As she stepped into the hallway, her hands began to shake. She felt clammy and cold. 
Time seemed to slow as she made her way to the door. She walked past her friend's apartment to the next door down, and timidly, she knocked. An older man answered the door and stared at Linda expectantly. She swallowed hard. Her mouth felt dry. She backed up and turned to Susan and Clem, explaining, That's not him. Wrong apartment. Susan and Clem looked genuinely disappointed. The three hitchhiked back to Spawn Ranch. Linda quietly wondered whether Charlie would kill her in her sleep. The next morning, when the news of the LaBianca murders broke, L.A. was thrown into a frenzy. Manson was sure this was the beginning of Helter Skelter. He waited for news of riots in the streets. But after a full day, he was left disappointed. Linda, for her part, feared the consequences of leaving Venice Beach unbloodied. But when Manson finally came to her, he told her he had a new mission for her. Tomorrow, she would go see Bobby Beausoleil in jail and find out what he planned to tell police. Linda agreed. She knew instantly that this was her ticket out of Spawn Ranch. That night, she packed a bag for herself and her daughter. She didn't sleep a wink. The next morning, she woke up early and went to the cabin where the children were kept, only to discover that they had been taken down to the freshwater pool to play in the little waterfall nearby. It was then that Linda made the most difficult decision of her life. She knew that she couldn't grab her daughter without arousing suspicion. She was also sure that the family wouldn't hurt her child. At least, she prayed that was the case. She grabbed her bag and keys and told Charlie she was going to see Bobby. She drove off the ranch and didn't stop until she reached New Mexico. When Linda didn't return that night, it became clear that she had no intention of coming back. But Manson likely felt that she would keep quiet to avoid being implicated in the murders. It certainly seems as though he was unconcerned. The crimes of the Manson family continued as rapidly as ever. A week after the first set of murders, on August 15th, the Manson family heard from an old friend, Kitty Lutzinger, Bobby's girlfriend. She wasn't getting along with her parents on their horse ranch and begged someone to come pick her up and bring her back to the family. Charlie was more than glad to bring her back into the fold, especially with Bobby's arrest. He wanted his family as close as he could keep them. The very next day, August 16th, Spawn Ranch was raided by police, not in connection to the murders, but rather for car theft. Several family members were arrested, including Kitty, and the children on Spawn Ranch were taken into state custody. As a result, Linda Kasabian was reunited with her daughter, Tanya. She returned to L.A. to grab her daughter, then immediately took her back into hiding in New Mexico. Only police knew where Linda would be staying. The Manson family was soon released from police custody on a technicality. But after the close call, they decided to flee Spawn Ranch. They moved to Death Valley, to a cabin called Barker Ranch. Barker Ranch was a rustic, bare-bones cabin in the middle of nowhere, belonging to the grandmother of one of the family members. It should have been the perfect place to hide out. But even in that remote location, 
Manson and his family managed to draw attention to themselves. For one thing, they were broke and had to resort to petty crime to make ends meet. For another, they made nonsensical drug-fueled decisions that gave them away as troublemakers. As one example, they set fire to some equipment owned by National Park Service rangers for no discernible reason. The locals easily figured out that the wave of petty theft was connected to the cult that had moved in down the road and reported them to police. But the true nail in the coffin came in early October of 1969. After months of pleading, Kitty finally convinced Susan to tell her why Bobby was being held by the police. Susan revealed everything about what had happened at Hinman's cabin that summer. Susan looked proud as she recounted the murder, even laughing at parts. It was that terrifying pride that pushed Kitty over the edge. On October 9, 1969, Kitty fled Barker Ranch and went straight to the police. Over the next three days, Barker Ranch was raided multiple times in connection with stolen property, leading to multiple arrests. Susan Atkins was also arrested in connection with the murder of Gary Hinman. But amazingly, none of the raids led police to connect the Manson family to the Tate or LaBianca murders. Instead, it was Susan Atkins that gave the family away. A few weeks after her arrest, she bragged to her cellmate about killing Sharon Tate. The cellmate ratted Atkins out without a second thought. From there, the rest of the family fell like dominoes. By this point, most of the family was already in cuffs in connection to theft and the machinery fires. The police already had all their suspects in custody. They just needed to connect them to the murders. Thanks to fingerprints lifted from the scene, Leslie, Tex, and Patricia were charged with the LaBianca and Tate murders. In addition, Susan Atkins agreed to testify against the family members as a way of avoiding the death penalty. She later recanted her statement, but it still gave police the necessary ammunition to round up the remaining suspects, Clem Grogan, Linda Kasabian, and Charles Manson himself. Linda Kasabian quickly agreed to testify against the family in exchange for immunity. Police were happy to work with her after realizing that she had tried to stay uninvolved with the murders and fled the family as soon as she was able. What followed next was nothing short of a media circus. Charles Manson proved to be a charismatic, engaging villain. The country watched in horror as his story unfolded. The trials began on June 15, 1970, and continued until late March of the following year. Manson was originally allowed to act as his own attorney, although his increasingly defiant behavior quickly lost him that privilege. Throughout the trial, he left the country spellbound as he went on rant after nonsensical rant about the police, his own divinity, race wars, murder, love, fear, and death. In fact, Manson proved so colorful and captivating that he upstaged the victims. Slowly, the press stopped calling them the Tate and LaBianca murders and instead referred to the crimes as the Manson family murders. The unincarcerated family members gathered outside the courthouse every day in support of their leader. 
they sang songs and repeated nonsensical rhetoric that sounded like it had come straight from Charlie's mouth. Reporters relayed this to Charlie, asking if he'd brainwashed his followers. He replied, quote, These children that come at you with knives, they're your children. You taught them. I didn't teach them. I just tried to help them stand up. But in fact, the speeches the followers repeated were well rehearsed. Squeaky Fromey visited Manson in prison every evening to get the script for the next day, then dutifully delivered it to the news reporters, who all knew her by name. Squeaky became an overnight celebrity. When Manson shaved his head in prison, several family members followed suit. One day, he carved an X into his forehead during the trial. It was meant to symbolize having X'd himself out of society. Several of his followers did the same. They told reporters they had deleted themselves from mainstream culture. They were completely free, a word that was often associated with the hippie movement. The Manson family is widely credited with killing hippie counterculture. Even though they never considered themselves hippies, their drug use and flower child aesthetic was enough for the mainstream to make the connection. The friction inside and outside of the courtroom each day mirrored the violent demonstrations against the Vietnam War and the Kent State shootings that took place just days before Manson's trial began. The spirit of the 60s was dead, a final victim of Charles Manson. On April 19, 1971, Manson was sentenced to death. Patricia, Tex, Susan, and Leslie were all sentenced to death as well, but their sentences were commuted to life in prison the next year. Linda Kasabian is the only person present for the murders who served no jail time. She was only with the Manson family for four weeks and has spent the past 50 years in hiding. Bobby Beausoleil is still in prison for Gary Henman's murder. He has been denied parole 18 times, with little hope of ever being released. Lynette Squeaky Fromey was uninvolved in the Manson family murders, but was a constant fixture outside the courthouse during the trials. She made headlines again in 1975 for the attempted assassination of President Gerald Ford. She spent the next 34 years in prison. After being paroled, she moved to upstate New York, where folks around her apartment complex say she is a model neighbor. Squeaky says she has a boyfriend, but will always love Charles Manson, who died in 2017 at the age of 83. The Manson family murders continue to reverberate, and not just because of the grotesque scenes left in their wake. They marked a moment in American culture, a microcosm of the political tension felt in every corner of the country. The loss of life was senseless. The violence was unfathomable. The tight-knit cult was nothing short of terrifying. And yet, like so many displays of human depravity, we find ourselves unable to look away. Thanks again for tuning in to our Female Criminals Summer of 69 special. 
If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd until August 9th, the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Female Criminals next week. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Aaron Lan and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.